You are listening to episode 8 of season 13 of the GNU World Order for 2019.48. Hey everyone, this is Klaatu, your friendly host, and in this episode we're going to look at some listener feedback, which, honestly, I've been out of town, so I have, or out of country, I should say, so I used to say out of town, because in the US that's all you ever did, you just went out of town and it felt like a huge world trip, whereas here in New Zealand you go out of town and you pretty much go out of country. So I've been out of country, don't really know how far behind on listener feedback I really am, but I'm going to make a stab at it today and I'm going to apologize profusely to anyone that I've ignored. I believe I've already ignored one of them, but I'm, I'm getting his email in today, so that's a good thing. Either way, we're, we're catching up on that this time around. Zero ZFS email today. I don't know what's happened about that, but yeah, nothing ZFS related at all. And then uh, we're also going to take a look at the T series, or the the, the A series of packages in Slackware, uh, in the, the T alphabetical, uh, the T category, I guess. We'll get through one, one or two of those and then finish them up in the next episode. So let's get started with listener feedback. So the first listener feedback I'm going to mention... Um, Actually, I'm switching it. Suddenly, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm switching it off. So here we go. I have coupons, vouchers to give away for webhosting.coop. That is the company that is currently, technically, sponsoring this show. They are the exclusive and sole sponsor of GNU World Order right now. Well, that's not true. Ken Fallon actually does a, a quite a lot to help this show out as well. So they're not the exclusive sponsor. They are one of the two sponsors. Well, actually, all of you, my dear listeners, do a lot to keep me going as well. So they're not they're not the exclusive or even, or even among the top few sponsors. They are one of many sponsors of this show. And anyway, they run a web hosting co-op, and that's kind of a big deal. And it turns out that I have vouchers to give away. So if you, if you like what you hear on this show... Um, then that's great. Has nothing to do with your decision to go with webhosting.coop. However, I do recommend webhosting.coop, possibly because they are really very good, possibly because they're a co-op and I just happen to like the idea of co-ops, and possibly because I've been with such poor hosting providers in the past that anything looks great to me. Possibly a little bit of all three. Who knows? But uh, sincerely, this this company is, is... is a nifty little company. It's a cooperative. I've talked about them before, and they are hosting this show now. So you can get 100% off of one year of co-op membership. That's available for one person. So if you are a one person and you have a project or a, a reason to, to need a web host somewhere, you can get your first year free with this voucher that I would provide to you were you to email me a request for the coupon code. So do that, and I will I will give you a year free hosting uh, at webhosting.coop, and you can try it out for yourself. Now, after that year, of course, you'll have to start paying, so it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit like the first taste is free type thing, you know, I mean, it's free for a year, that'll be great, but then you would have to start paying, so you'd want to look at that sort of you know, you're really just deferring a cost there. It's not for the, it's not for the rest of your life. Um, not that you can really find free hosting for the rest of your life anymore, per se. I mean, I, you can find really, really cheap hosting. Um, but this is really good hosting, uh, quite reliable 
from what I've seen. I mean, he started bugging me about it years and years ago, and they haven't gone anywhere, so that's a good thing. So, yeah, you, you, you this is definitely worth trying, and if you're shopping around for a place anyway, then this really may be a, a thing to look at. And then there's um, a 50% off of one year of co-op membership, and again, it can be used only once, but by any number of new people. So if you are if you are not a member of webhosting.coop right now and you want to become a member, you can get 50% off of one year of hosting by emailing me and asking for a 50% off coupon. And that's good for everybody. So whoever you may be, however many of you there may be out there, shoot me an email. I will give you this code. So do that if you if you have a need for it because as I've said in uh, another episode, it, it really, really is um, quite quite a good little hosting company, and and definitely probably you know if you're shopping around, it's it's worth a look at least. If if nothing else, it's worth looking at. Uh, Josh also uh, Josh Cox, the one of the organizers of webhosting.coop, referred me to a couple of different interesting projects. I think they're worth mentioning. So the first one that he well one of them that he talked about that I'll first one that I'll mention is called Gatsby. Uh, GatsbyJS.org, and it is a, I guess you would call it a framework, a little bit in the same way that Bootstrap, the CSS thing, is a framework. You know, it's not like a framework, I don't think, as as you might think of with Grav and Jekyll and Hugo or whatever that other one is, but it is it is a set of tools kind of brought together in a sensible, structured way to help you get started fairly quickly with with these with these with these things that that have been put together in a nice and neat kind of way. So I, I don't have any use for it right now, but it's certainly, you know, like like I say, Bootstrap or jQuery or something like that, or what was the other one? Um Scriptaculous, I think was one of them. Yeah, kind of collections of things that exist that that might help you build other things. And case in point actually is uh, I'm going to say Kubash rather than Qbash because it's it, it is Kubash and I'm assuming Kubash K U B A S H .org is built with Gatsby. So if you go to that site you'll see some some of the things that you could do with Gatsby for instance. And you might think, "Well, that's a very fancy site." Well, yeah, it's it's built entirely with this um with this this Gatsby framework. So it's kind of kind of neat to see what you can do with you you can create like such dynamic things with with relatively simple tool sets and and that contextually he was talking about wordpress and how much of a problem from a security aspect wordpress can be because of course people install it and then they kind of walk away from it and they don't do their security updates and so on and so on so something like gatsby or grav or or jekyll all these things they help really sort of strangely the levels above you as a as a citizen of a web hosting company uh, they help those people maintain the security of their systems so that was kind of an interesting insight that I had never really thought about myself but the 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 cubash site is very cool and the reason that that was brought up in the first place in the email was because it is an interactive shell for clusters and while so in other words, this is kind of, in a way, maybe almost well. It's su- certainly a little bit like Kubernetes, right? But it's it's um, 
you, you could think of it as like maybe an open shift or or something like that like the the interface by which an administrator would manage a dynamic array of of i guess virtual servers I, I i keep wanting to use the term serverless which i think i made fun of in a previous episode and i'm still making fun of it but now i'm starting to use it in real life darn it so it's a serverless environment right like the idea is that you have this big stash of storage space that is accessible to your customers and then the customers of course give access to the the front end of that storage space to their to their customers to the the worldwide web and that's and that's how it's all done now. And I think for a beginning Unix admin or a Linux admin, a person who's coming into this game fresh, whether it's fresh out of school or whether it's fresh out of you know your first career or your second career and you're, you're moving into something else, the the idea that you're going to get in, go in and and be handed a server, a physical server, and, and told, okay, I want you to install a Linux on there, and I want you to to get get onto the the network for you know the the in, the update network for that linux distribution and then i want you to to integrate it into our our actual network the intranet and i want you to make it a server for this purpose the likelihood of that happening is a lot less now than is the likelihood of someone sitting you down in front of a web browser and saying okay i want you to configure three new hosts or a group of hosts that can be dynamically spun up or killed off uh, that can manage th- these this set of tasks and 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 it should scale so it should only create as many hosts as necessary for, for the load and so on so that's that's where this is all headed and openshift and apparently kubash and other tools like this that's the those are the new tools of the trade and it's probably worth worth um getting used to or at least getting familiar with it really is and kubash looks nice this certainly appeals to me it looks like a fairly simple straightforward way to to manage uh, your 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 environment your cluster environment so that seems nice and i mean i i used to do a a a fair amount of stuff in qemu kemu kemu uh, you know, and I used to use it directly. I mean, up until like maybe last year, I used QEMU directly, and I maintained a little web web page on one of my sites on on an updated command set of QEMU because it it was always updating, it was always changing those 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 options. And at this point, it has gotten so complex that I finally decided that the only sane way to do this, and certainly the the more effective way to do it, because it, um, there are just so many switches and things that you might try to optimize in order to get you know near near native performance the the the, the right way to do it is with vert manager virt dash manager vert manager from I, I think it's a red hat project actually but you can install that on your linux box and and i think gnome even comes with something like that gnome boxes i think is the virtual machine manager and of course there's virtual box and other things like that but i wouldn't really recommend those personally but but the vert manager certainly is the one that i have experience with and it's great because it's this environment where you can configure machines and make them go and you, you get really good performance with them and so on and, and it figures out all the network for you and it figures out passing of sound and usb and stuff like that but that's a one-to-one relationship, right? Like that's that's 
that's assuming i mean it's it's a great tool if you do have to go into a virtual machine on in your big um, array of clusters but i mean you wouldn't want to you wouldn't set those up manually yourself you need in this in this market in this environment you need you you need that stuff to be automated you need hosts to spawn themselves when they are required by by your cluster there's not enough hosts that are designated um, capable of processing these HTTP requests. So quick, spin up a new one so that more HTTP requests can can be dealt with and, and it can balance the load and so on and so on. You want tools for that, and those tools are going to be things like Kubash and OpenShift and whatever else there is. So there you go. That's Kubash in a, in a nutshell. And um, one thing I don't like on their website is that they have a one-line installer, which is just a curl command piped to bash. <laughs> it just seems like such a horrible way to install anything. I can't believe a project would put that sort of thing on their page. I re- it really bugs me when, when projects do that. It honestly does. The first time I think I saw this on a big project was Homebrew, the Mac OS sort of, you know, net net packet or uh, what is it source package um, package source uh, slash apt get whatever kind of alike and they have this just sort of this this bash command that you can you just you download a script to install something on your computer blindly and pipe it to bash or to shell um, on your computer and you just let it happen i just think that's such a horrible Horrible habit to get people into, but there it is. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's really interesting project. You should go look at it, I guess. And uh, it's a great email. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for that. Okay, next up uh, is from Carl. So Carl says he listened to episode 1306 today. Response to Deep Geek about Julian dates not resetting every year. It is confusing. Um, when he was in the Air Force, Carl was, they used the method you are using, and called it the Julian date. We had Julian date calendars laying around, which consisted of a a single piece of heavy cardstock with a cross-reference table of month and date to Julian day on each side. And he sent me a link, which I will put in the show notes, because it's actually really, really useful. I'm overjoyed to have this. It is a, a, like a a scan, probably, of, of what he, of, of exactly what he's talking about. Julian date calendar, perpetual. Uh, for leap year, use reverse side. So it shows you the the the, the number of the day the, that that's the percent J in the date command of of each day and and yeah each day and each month. So it's just it goes from zero zero one all the way to uh, three hundred and sixty five or three sixty six on a leap year. So I'm I'm really excited to have that. That's fantastic. It's just a nice quick reference, really. That, that's what it is. So he says, he, he continues and says, I listened to your episode where you discussed Fossil and have started using it myself for just local personal stuff. I really like it so far. The built-in web server is a pretty cool feature, ignoring any argument about whether a version control system should have a built-in web server. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I agree with, yeah, the whole paragraph, really. I, I Fossil is neat. It's it, it was a lot of fun using it. I, I really... I have to admit, I've, I've, I'm not using it now. I used it for a project, which uh, strangely I had to then convert to Git because that's what the, the the deliverables were. So that kind of was a weird thing. But 
but it was fun to use. Um, I did use it on a couple of things. I used it on another podcast that I have called Mixed Signals. No, it's called Chronicles and Commons over on MixedSignals.ml, and I, I use it for some of the some of the article content that I'm tracking. Like if I'm reading a series of books for sort of a, a book report article or a series, then I'll I'll keep all my notes in a, in a fossil repository just for fun. It is it is nice, and I heard from someone somewhere that the web server implemented in Fossil is what was just so trivial that it's it's not a it's it's actually not a big deal to have it in there. Now that said, I don't know what that means about well should this should this web server really be like you know online like is that a thing to be secure about? Do we feel good about that? I don't know. I, I haven't looked at it. So he says I've been meaning to look into Lua for a couple of years and. Again, your episodes on that has motivated me to do so. I do IT work as my day job and as a hobby in my off time, but I'm only recently back into Linux in any serious way. Well, welcome back, Carl. Many years ago, probably early 2000s, I tried to switch to Linux on the desktop full-time at home, but I guess I gave up a little too easy and reserved using it for my home server and work, and later for Raspberry Pi projects. I've now reloaded my main laptop with Fedora, and I'm loving it. The point I'm trying to come to is that I purchased a license a couple of years ago for the Reaper DAW on Windows. It includes Lua to allow users to customize and extend functionality. Yeah, that's a pretty common use for Lua, really. It's 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 very popular, from what I can tell, as a sort of a plug-in enabler. I've started going through the official Lua book. Apparently, you can use Python too, but that has been but but that has to be installed by the user separately. Whereas Lua comes embedded in Reaper. Reaper is closed source, but they do uh, they have now started releasing Linux builds, which I've tested successfully on Fedora, so the paid license was not wasted. I'm not sure if you've ever covered VSTs on Linux, as I'm only back to July of season 12. But Reaper on Linux users seem to cite issues with that. Not sure if that's Reaper specific or VSTs on Linux in general. Um, yeah, so so. VSTs on Linux uh, is something that I've never really had to look into personally in any serious way. I know a lot of people coming to Linux have a you know a library of non-trivial VSTs uh, that are non-trivial to their workflow. Like they've they've come to develop a relationship with this VST, and in order for their music projects to work historically, they need the VSTs, and also in order for them to just be comfortable. Uh, making music, they they want their set of old, reliable VSTs. I totally identify with that. Uh, the VSTs, by the way, if you don't know, are music plugins. It's it's a technology by Steinberg, who makes things like Pro Tools, and they they have VST, and it's it's a very popular interface for for music plugins of all manner. Some you know effect units or synthesizers or samplers, you know, all kinds of things. So anything that on Linux you would do with uh, Ladspa or LV2 or Dizzy, you would do with a VST on another platform. Maybe. There are other, pl- there are other plug-in formats, audio units being a, a pretty popular one. But, but the VSTs, generally, that's pretty popular. People rely on them. It's understandable. That's kind of how, that's how computers go, right? You, you start to interface with them. You start to get used to them. And that's, of course, why I think that really, ultimately, open source is a, a better option. You know, like, the earlier you can get in the better, because you start to rely, you, you build dependencies on things that you really ultimately own. And we can get into a debate over whether, well, does it matter if you own it if you can't actually rebuild it in, in a pinch? And I think that, yeah, actually it does matter. 
because if you're telling me that you can't live without this thing, but you don't own that thing, then you're in a very precarious position. But unfortunately, obviously, not all of us discover open source in a usable way um, as early as, I guess, we would have liked in retrospect. And, and that's, that's super easy. Like, you can, you can get dependent on things. And I, I, certainly, I certainly felt that in some areas for, you know, video editing. It took me a while to get really, really, to, to find a comfortable place uh, for video editing on Linux. And, and that was largely because of my, my preconceptions that had been built up by Final Cut Pro. That's just just how it is, you know. You you get used to one thing, and and it's very difficult. Even when you're willing, it it can be difficult to switch over because you're just used to something else. So VSTs can be a pro a problem on Linux. Now you can run them natively on Linux in some cases. If someone writes a VST and publishes it for Linux, then you can actually run that VST on Linux. That's it's a native thing. I mean, you have to un you have to install the VST SDK and stuff like that. But I mean, it will work. The other way, and the more common way, I guess, is that people, you know, the publishers generally publish the VST for Windows. And so you can, in theory, run that VST on, within Wine, or with Wine. And, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's one of those things. So, yeah, I don't believe that the VST problem that you're having, Carl, is necessarily because it's, because it's Reaper. I think it's, it's because, it's because the VST that you might try you know, one of the VSTs you might try today happened to be really, really complex on the internals of it, and and it's just not working well in in whatever emulation or or not emulation layer that you have going on. Whereas a different VST that you try works brilliantly, well, because it's it's super portable code on the inside and it's trivial to run. So it really kind of depends on the VST. And the VST, of course, is it, the VST itself is just a plug-in format. It's the thing that makes, you know, an, it, there's an engine in there, and then there's the deliverable part. And the deliverable part's probably pretty easy. I don't know for sure. I've never done this. But, but that's probably pretty easy, because music programs can only take so many kinds of inputs and outputs, right? Whereas what's generating that stuff on the inside, now that's a lot more complex. And hopefully they've bundled all their DLLs and all their other things that they need for it, and hopefully Wine understands how to run those things. But if not, there's going to be problems. So he says, to circle back around uh, to Fossil, as I was going through this Lua book, I wondered if people used it for web scripting and read through a mailing list thread where D. Richard Hip, author of Fossil and SQLite, was mentioned and how he includes an HTTP server, which is a single file of C code and runs both the Fossil and SQLite websites with it. I downloaded, compiled, and tested the resulting 49k binary on my Fedora laptop cross-compiled it to ARM for the Alpine Linux I have on one of my Pis, worked on both. I love small and simple. There's no documentation for it beyond the code comments, but that was apparently enough for me to get it working, so that's probably more than sufficient for most. Pretty cool. I was able to serve the output of some simple Lua scripts as a test. Fascinating email. Thank you very much, Carl. And I think, I think Carl, I ignored for like a month or something, so I am very, very sorry, Carl. That was not personal. That was me uh, being being out of the country probably, or just being really poor with management of email. But yeah, fascinating email, really, truly fascinating. Um, this this kind of stuff, this, this tiny footprint code, really, really intriguing, like really intriguing. Um, you can get, it's dangerously fascinating. You can kind of go crazy with it. And and sometimes you have to. Sometimes you, you, you find it 
really, really beneficial to get to know that sort of thing. Maybe not on a deep, intimate level like, oh, I'm writing this stuff now, but but possibly because you're running a server off of a Raspberry Pi and you realize, you know what? Lighter is better. I need stuff that's really light. Or you're using a really old laptop and you realize every spare CPU cycle I can grab it makes my life easier on a day-to-day basis. I mean, someone who, has, who ran a what, a 2004 iBook running Debian for at least two years when I first got to New Zealand? I mean, th- that was a real thing. <laughs> you know, like, KCalc was not going to cut it anymore. It had to be XCalc, that kind of stuff. So very, very significant and really kind of, as I say, just dangerously fascinating because you can, you can, you can get lost in that world. It's not a bad thing. Okay, so let's go get a coffee. I'm, I'm, I've cheated. I've had a coffee this entire time, as I often do. But I'm, I'll, I'll go, I'll go for a refill. You've twisted my arm. You've talked me into it. Let's go get a cup of coffee. We'll come back and we'll look at the T series in the A series of Slackware coffee because this is fun, fun stuff. We've got the T-series here, or what I'm calling the T-series. I shouldn't call it the T-series. We have the, the the applications that start with the letter T. There are four of them, so it, it's ostensibly not that much to get through. It starts with TAR. Now, TAR has been around since 1979, so it is truly ubiquitous in the POSIX world. Its purpose is pretty simple. It takes one or more files and wraps them into a self-contained file called a tape archive. And it is called a tape archive because back in the old days, instead of hard drives, people would use these big tape drives for mass storage. So if you had a bunch of backups or if you had a bunch of data that you just wasn't really active anymore, you would commit that to a tape archive, a, a tape drive. And, and the way that you would do that is with TAR. Nowadays, we just kind of use it generically as a way to bundle a bunch of files into one file. So the, the way that you might have used zip on your old operating system is how you can use tar more or less on Linux, except tar doesn't have to be compressed. It can be just a wrapper around a bunch of files. If you want to comp- then compress that entity that you've just created, you can add to, you know, you can take your tar archive and then compress that. So that's a different it's a, it's different sort of workflow than, say, zip, where generally you're, you're saying, okay, I want to zip these things up into one self-contained zip archive, and that implies that you are compressing them. Now, actually, there are some flags, at least for zip on Linux, there are flags where you, you actually don't have to compress the zip. You, you could do a zip with zero compression, but Generally speaking, the implication is that you're compressing. So it's different. TAR does not imply that. And TAR is one of those little applications that I feel gets kind of a bad rap. And that's because a lot of, or some people, they they cite it as a confusing command. And in in a way, I will 
kind of agree that it's a confusing command. If you if you use it the way that many, many people sort of encourage you to use it. So this is my eternal complaint about documentation. And I, I'm not talking about documentation for open source. I'm talking about documentation. People do this a lot. And what they do is they, they teach other people how to, how to use something from the point that they are using it themselves. So in other words, I might tell you, dear listener, that tar is a simple command. And all you have to do to use tar is a command like this, tar, cvf, archive.tar, my files. See, what, what could be easier than that? It's not that hard, right? Okay, so what have I just taught you? Absolutely nothing, right? I, well, I've taught you, maybe I've taught you, the. Uh, maybe you can glean from what I've just said, the syntax, right? You, tar, okay. Some letters, okay. Archive.tar, so okay, that's the, that's the point where we're creating a tar file. I get that. And then my files. Okay, that must be some collection of, of files. Okay, got it. So I've taught you maybe something if you really, really think about it. But the problem is, of course, that it doesn't actually teach you anything. And in fact, it kind of teaches you some poor practice. So for instance, tar is, it happens to accept, I guess, what it calls BSD-style short, short commands, or short options, rather. And, and that means that you can do the, the, the command itself, tar, and then instead of like a dash dash foo or a dash f for dash dash foo, you can just f or c or v, whatever. So th that, that's atypical on Linux, right? So tar is a very, very common, common command that we teach people on Linux, and yet it is one of the, the least, the, the way that we teach it is one of the least common ways you will ever experience a command on Linux. You will almost never do that with anything else. You're not going to usually type in a command and then nothing, you know, no dashes but options and then other things. So that's, it's silly that we do that. I don't know why we do that, but it's one of those things, right? So here's how you can teach tar in a meaningful way for people. So first of all, use long options. Listen to how easy a tar command actually is when you just use the long options. Here's how you create a tar, uh, an archive. So uh, tar dash dash create space dash dash verbose space dash dash file archive.tar space my files. It is almost self-documenting. But wait, there's, there's more self-documenting options. You can go further with this. So if you wanted to create a tar, remember I said tars are not inherently compressed, right? So if you want to make a tar that is also then compressed, you can do it with an option. So you could do tar dash dash create dash dash gzip, that's like GNU zip, gzip dash dash file foo.tar.gz space my files. And my files, again, I'm just using as a, a catch-all phrase for a bunch of files. So it could be foo, bar, and baz. It could be a directory called my files, whatever you want. Similarly, there's a, there's a technology for compression called bzip bzip2 specifically. So tar dash dash create dash dash bzip Two. That's just the letter B, and then the word zip, and then the number two. B zip two. Uh, space dash dash file space foo dot tar dot bz two space foo bar baz whatever. So that would create a dot tar gz or a tar dot bz two compressed archive. There are more self-documenting commands. So for instance, if you want to then expand an archive that you receive or that you've created, you want to unarchive it, you want to uncompress and unarchive it, 
you can do a tar dash dash extract dash dash file archive.tar.gz or foo.tar.gz or whatever whatever the name of the archive is. So despite its its strange reputation for being a complex and cryptic command, tar is actually one of the most self-documenting commands I think possible. And by self-documenting, I mean once you learn the the options, they're they're very very obvious. And and in fact, I might even argue that they're almost intuitive insofar as commands can be intuitive, right? I mean, you don't just intuit what to type. But if you look it up, you kind of get the feel for it. It's like, okay, well, so the action that I want to to do, and then the file that I want to create, and then the the, the, the files that I want to, to put into that single file that I've just created. It's really, really simple, and not nearly as difficult as its reputation would, would have you believe. Okay, so there's other stuff. There are other interesting things that you can do with, with tar, and these are are some things that uh, we don't always we don't always do. I don't I don't feel um, th- these are kind of the the lesser lesser known use cases possibly. I mean maybe not in your workflow, but for me it is. So there's a tar dash dash append, and that means of course that you can take your tape archive and append a file to it. So you can put another file into that archive. So tar dash dash append dash dash file archive dot tar foo dot txt would add foo.txt to an existing archive called archive.tar. And you can do that with a directory as well. It doesn't have to be a file. It could be the, the directory called foo or, or bar or whatever. You can also see what's inside of an archive. So if you do a tar-list-filearchive.tar.gz or whatever, then it'll show you exactly what files and folders are inside of that, of that archive. That's really handy. I use that one all, really all, almost all the time. It's something that I do very frequently. Uh, in fact, I, I sometimes do that before I extract an archive. Just to, if I'm not 100% sure what's in the archive, I'll, I'll often I'll often look at it first, just for whatever reason. I mean, sometimes it's just as simple to, because I don't know if that tar is going to be what we call a tar bomb, uh, meaning that if you extract it in your current directory, it it spits out a bunch of files and folders because it didn't it wasn't self-contained it didn't have a folder you know it didn't have a top level directory it was just a tar was the the tar archive was the top level directory and that gets annoying so sometimes i'll do a tar tvf archive.tar.gz which is the the equivalent of the dash dash list dash dash file um and and I'll, i'll view the files inside of that tar directory just to make sure that yes it is it is contained in a subdirectory. I don't need to create a subdirectory and then tar stuff into that directory. You can also extract just one file or one directory using tar. So you can do a tar uh, dash dash extract dash dash file archive dot tar dot gz and then let's say foo slash one dot txt and that would that would grab foo and the file one dot txt inside of foo. So in other words, when you extract from a directory by default, it extracts you know, it, it creates a directory and then the file that you've extracted inside of that directory, which which you can do. So if, let's say that you did a tar-list-file archive.tar.gz and it just returned foo bar bass. Well, wait, there's no top-level directory there. There's no there's no um, archive directory. You know, it's not archive and then within archive is foo bar bass. It's just foo bar bass. So if we did a extract, if we did a tar-extract-file archive.tar.gz, then we're going to have foo, bar, and baz in the current directory. We don't want that. We want it in a in a directory, self-contained, uh, or, or contained, rather. So you might do a make directory 
my new files and then extract the tar directory into my new files. And that would be tar-extract-file-archive.tar.gz space dash dash directory equals my new files. And that would that, that defines that the directory into which you want the tar command to change before actually untarring all that stuff is is my new files. And that could of course be any path that exists. And then foobar and baz would be would be dumped into that directory rather than into your current directory. That's a pretty handy one. I use that quite often. I think most people do probably. You can also extract just one file or one directory from an archive. So if you do a tar dash dash extract dash dash file archive.tar.gz, let's say, um, foo slash one dot txt, then tar extracts the, the directory name, creates a directory, and puts the file one dot txt into that directory. So for instance, you would be left, if you did that, you would be left with a directory called foo in your current directory, and inside of foo would be 1.txt. You can do that with, with multiple ones, too. You don't have to you don't have to do it one at a time. You could do tar xvf or dash dash extract dash dash file archive.tar.gz, um, you know, foo slash 1.txt bar slash 2.txt, whatever, and then it would extract those files for you into your current directory. Now the really cool thing about tar, and and I th I think you know as I understand this is kind of this is probably partly what it was originally intended to be, but but tar is, and I guess many things can be seen this way, but but tar is a it's a pretty intelligent program, but it, it's a miniature it's basically a miniature file system because you've you've taken these files in directories and y you've you've created a, a sort of a, a bubble that contains these these locations in them. And that means when you expand it, when you pop this bubble, all those files, they drop down onto your system exactly where they are meant to be. So for instance, let's say you're, well, let's say you're writing a Slack build. This is a pretty good example, actually, because this is exactly how a Slack build works. So let's say you're writing a Slack build, and you, and you know that you have a, an executable file, the thing that people want to run, the program that they're actually installing. Let's say it's called Trashy. And Trashy needs to go into user bin. But Trashy.8, or .1, or no, .8, I think, .gz, needs to go into user man man8. Okay, so you got two files, and they're, they're they're destined for two separate locations on a bigger computer in a larger space. So you 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 tar them up, and you're sure you you make sure that you tar them such that within the tar archive is a slash u or a, yeah user slash bin slash trashy and a user man man eight, uh, man, uh trash trashy dot eight dot gz. So now you've got these two files that are deliverable in in one container in one package. Now if you hand that to someone then in order to install Trashy at this point, all they really have to do, as long as their system is is an effective mirror of yours, that, that means that they do have a slash USR slash bin, and that they do have a USR slash man slash man8, then all they really have to do is extract that package with the, destin the destination directory being the root of their file system. 
So what they can do is they can do a tar xvf, um, you know, trashy package dot tar, and then dash dash directory equals slash. Now tar expands, it goes into, you know, the tar processes the archive, and it finds usr slash bin slash trashy. Okay, well, if we start at the at the directory provided by the user, which is dash dash directory equals slash, so slash, and then we append the thing that exists in the, U, the in the tar package in the tar archive that's usr slash bin slash trashy then that 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 is correct right trashy now will go into the tar will find the slash the, yep that exists we have a root directory great we we have a usr that's cool so that exists so we'll go into there we have a bin okay that's great we'll go into there is there a trashy here no okay well put trashy there okay perfect done now we go back to slash Yes, we find that. Found the user again. Yep. Man. Yep. Man8. Yes, that exists. Does trashy.8.gz exist? No. Okay, we'll put that in there. Done. And and that's how you can you can use a tar archive really for backups. I mean, it's it's a it's an ideal form for that. It it is exactly, I mean, it's perfectly suited for that because you can you can mirror your file system within the tar archive and then when you expand that tar archive as long as you point it to the right starting point then it, it can rebuild you know it, it will just it will do an overlay of all those files in the tar archive exactly over the file system that it finds at at the directory that you pointed it at and i mean it'll do that at any directory right so let's say for some reason you you actually want things to go into some local directory somewhere so you could do that you could do dash dash directory equals local and, and then it'll find the local directory in the current directory. It finds that, and then it puts user bin trashy, user... I don't know why you would want to do that, but maybe you would. Maybe there's some reason that you need to have a local version of some package done. Now, other other archives do that. It, it's not it's not totally unique to tar by any means, but that is... It, it's one of the things that tar does get, get use, gets used for quite often. It is a handy feature of tar and something to kind of get used to because it's... Um, yeah, it's a nice little feature. Okay, so that was tar, and um, I'm a big fan of tar. What can I say? So there's also in here uh, the TCSH. So TCSH is an enhanced but completely compatible version of the Berkeley Unix C shell. That is the CSH. It is a command language interpreter usable both as an interactive login shell and a shell script command processor. It includes a command line editor, programmable word completion, spelling correction, a history mechanism, job control, and a C-like syntax. So TCSH is a shell that I used personally for about four, three, three or four years on a daily basis for, for well over eight hours a day. It is the shell that – it was the official shell of the – of a um, – movie production studio that I worked at when first moving here to New Zealand. And, I mean, you could use you could use other shells, but a lot of the internal scripts were written for TCSH, and so it just made sense to me to use TCSH. I just figured, for compatibility reasons, I would do that. And it was a lot of fun. It was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, and I... I really kind of mean I keep meaning to go back to TCSH every now and again, and yet the the 
the reason there's just no good reason to do it. Bash is just such a good shell, in my humble opinion, that um, it just it just doesn't really make sense necessarily to to stray too far from Bash. And and I've done it here and there. I've said I, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know what I'm gonna use TCSH on this system. I don't care. I don't care about Bash anymore. I do care, but I'm not going to use it on every system. I want to use TCSH on some system just to get myself, you know, to, to, to mix it up a bit, to make sure that the things that I do aren't becoming too Bash-dependent. And then inevitably, and feel free to critique me on this, dear listener, but inevitably I think, well, you know what? TCSH, or, or rather Bash, is just so easy to get. Like, you can get Bash on any system. And, and frankly, it is one of the first things that I install on a BSD system, or, or if I had to, on Open Illumos, although, um, or Open Indiana, rather. But it's actually already there, so I wouldn't even have to do that. But, I mean, it's, it's something that I, I install very, very quickly on any system that I'm on. And I know that it's quite easy to install for other people. And so I think, and, and it's not a huge dependency. And so I think, you know, requiring Bash is really not that different than requiring let's say python or perl or lua on any other system it's just it just seems like a, a small request to make if someone really wants to run you know this script or that script would i feel the same way if I, if i was stuck on a system that did not have access to bash probably not however i do feel that most of my audience the the, the people for whom my scripts are useful that's what i mean by audience um i i, I don't imagine that they're on systems that that do not have access to bash that just that, that doesn't feel like a danger to me so tcsh while i did have fun with it i, I got to admit there's just in in w when you're comparing it to something like bash which has such a rich syntax and such a a wealth of things that you can do in it it's kind of a hard sell that said TCSH is um, kind of my go-to scripting language for Git hooks. I don't know why. Um, when I'm doing Git hooks, I frequently use TCSH because I guess um, the first Git hook that I ever wrote was in TCSH at this this former job where I was using TCSH, and so it's just kind of to my mind like that's the language for Git hooks. I don't know why, and and I've 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 started to to wander from even that, but that is that is a, a quirk that has been true for a while. Now, if you're wondering why one might use TCSH, I, I honestly do not know. Uh, there are some people who have told me that there are like little touches in TCSH that are just, uh, they make, you know, they, they, they feel more familiar to someone uh, syntax-wise. But, but for me, I, I don't really, I, I don't, I don't have that. Um, I, I'm not used to programming in a, a certain language and, and, and you know, well, for instance, here, here's a bash for loop, right? Bash for would be uh, for var in, in, in uh, foo do echo var done, right? That's a for loop. Well, in TCSH, it's uh, for each, all one string, for each var parentheses foo, close parentheses, do, not do, uh, just, just echo, echo var, uh, and then end. So that's a little bit different. It's a bit different. And those those parentheses, uh, the, the way it uses parentheses certainly would feel more like uh, 
you know, like C or C++ or Java, whatever. So if, if parentheses, um, some expression, then some command, echo, you know, whatever, true. Else if parentheses, expression, close parentheses, then some other command, else some yet some other command, end if. That would be the if statement in, in a TCSH versus bash, which would just be if, you know, whatever your test expression is, uh, semicolon then some command elif some other expression semicolon then some other command else yet another command and then fi fi that's if backwards that's a little bit clunky i'll admit now there are some other quirks to tcsh which are, are less charming so for instance there there's no f there's no function function in in tcsh so in bash you can create your own functions Foo, parentheses, parentheses, curly brace, echo, hello world, end curly brace. Now, if you call foo, you, you, have, you have that function. That's how you can call that function. You're done. So if, if you're writing a, a relatively complex bash script, you might want to, to create functions within your script and then call them later so that you don't have to keep copying the same code. Seems obvious. Uh, TCSH just doesn't have that, that functionality at all. It also doesn't have any associative arrays, and um, I think there was some other thing about it that I, I, I had to find a, a weird workaround for. It was, I can't remember if it was a, um, a, a, a while loop or a, maybe an until, you know, kind of an until thing or something. I, I, I feel like it was a loop, but I'm looking it up right now as I speak, and I'm, I'm, I'm finding a bunch of, a bunch of ways to do this. So maybe I'm maybe I'm either misremembering or just not remembering exactly what it was that I was trying to do. But there were there were a couple of things in TCSH that that just didn't either you know didn't exist natively or they it required some kind of weird hack to sort of mimic it. And it did work. The hacks worked. But it, you know if it, given the choice of looking up the weird hack and just getting it for free and bash, I. I I have found that yeah, I'd rather just get it for free in Bash. And I guess finally, the, the one of the things about TCSH that you'll notice is that it sets variables differently. So in Bash, you just do like a you know foo equals seven, but in TCSH, you would do something like set foo seven. So that's not a, not a huge deal, just something that I, I just remembered as I was speaking and figured I'd mention it because it's it's different. And that's TCSH. TCSH. It is it is. A, a good shell to try. Um, I've never... It's the only other shell that I've tried, to be fair. Like, Bash is, is the one that I use. TCSH I used for a good, like I say, three or four years. And that was fun. I haven't gone back to it because Bash is just so much easier. But um, there is, you know, obviously there are other ones out there. There's KSH. I mean, there is... There's ZSH or Z shell or whatever they call it. But I feel like that's... If you go that path, you're just going down the Bash path. Path, really, I think, aren't you really? So KSH maybe would be something to try if you wanted something really, really unique. I've never tried that one, but TCSH, it's not a bad shell. It, it's a good shell. I like TCSH. I have nothing bad to say about it. I just have to admit I don't really use it that much anymore. But it's a cool one, and if you want to try it, you should. And it's small. I mean, it really is. It is a small, like the the package size of TCSH in Slackware is a mere 393 kilobytes. Whereas for Bash, by comparison, we're looking at 
1374 kilobytes, so 1374 kilobytes. So what, almost three times as big, or is that over three times as big? One of those two. It's a bigger file. It's a bigger. Um, it's a it's a bigger thing. So TCSH might be useful just for that reason alone. You know, like we were saying, small and simple sometimes is what you're looking for. So anyway, that's that's those are the two T uh, applications that we're going to cover in this episode. That was it. So thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.